From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The parents of Christian Glass say their multi-million dollar settlement is about more than money. They'll be able to talk with new recruits about their son's wrongful death at the hands of police. And there will be enhanced training for officers. Hopefully, when those officers listen to Simon and Sally, hear from a mom and dad, they will understand the gravity of the situation. We'll talk about what goes into settlements and why they can vary so greatly. Then, the two candidates for Denver mayor square off in a debate to talk about migrants, childcare, and attainable housing. To make a city work, we have to have a range of housing throughout our city. We can't afford a Denver where Denverites can't afford to live. My gift to CPR was matched by my employer. We support CPR with a business reporting grant. I'm a network partner and a member of the Legacy Circle. I support Colorado Public Radio by giving stock. Our foundation proudly supports CPR's efforts. We will distribute residual assets tax-free to CPR. My husband and I are Colorado Public Radio leadership partners. Explore all ways to give and make your gift on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. The family of Christian Glass was awarded $19 million after their son was killed by a sheriff's deputy nearly a year ago in Clear Creek County. The settlement for police misconduct is unprecedented in Colorado, and it's among the largest ever in the country. His parents say the money is symbolic. They hope the required police training that comes with the settlement teaches officers to step in when they see fellow cops acting out of line. If any of them had spoken up and followed their legal duty to intervene, he would be alive. The family's attorney, Siddhartha Rathod, also negotiated the settlement for Shanine McLean, whose son Elijah died in police custody in 2019. Rathod spoke with CPR's Andrea Dukakis about how these kind of large settlements are decided. Siddhartha, welcome. Thank you for having me. What factors go into determining a settlement of this size? Is there a magic number here? There is no number that is a magic number. There's no number that's going to bring Christian back to his family and to his community. The amount of a settlement comes from a lot of factors. And this uh, settlement comes from multiple different agencies, It's Simon and Sally Glass's intent to form the Christian Glass Foundation that will tackle issues affecting young people, affecting police violence. What that's going to look like, how that's going to work, those are things that are going to have to be flushed out over the next months and years. We reached out to Daphne Durrett. She's a staff writer for the Marshall Project. It's a nonprofit news organization focused on criminal justice. She's covered a lot of settlements and police shootings. And here's what she had to say about these large settlements. For every case like this that we see, $27 million to George Floyd, $12 million to Breonna Taylor's family, $19 million to Christian Glass's family, there are a number of other cases where police departments are settling for a million, 1.5 million, 2 million, $500,000. 
when you put them all together, we're talking about a number that is in the billions of dollars that police agencies across the country have paid. The immediate impact of those settlements is that the taxpayers ultimately are the ones that are liable for helping the governments pay those amounts. So you see changes in the result in some places of higher taxes. You also see local governments taking money away from some other resources that they provide in order to satisfy these settlements. So ultimately, the community is what suffers in these cases. Are taxpayer dollars going to this particular settlement? Almost all of the settlement is covered by insurance. Uh, There are self-insured pools, and then there's private insurance, and that is covering the vast, vast majority of this. Everything but $3 million, which is paid by the state of Colorado. I would... I disagree with one thing that was said by the uh, other speaker, and that is the idea that because these municipalities have to pay these large sums for their violent and illegal acts, that it's taking away from other aspects of the community. Police have time and time again demonstrated that they will spend hundreds of thousands, if not millions of dollars on tanks and armored vehicles and the militarization of police. There needs to be more money spent on de-escalation, crisis response, social workers uh, working with police officers. And that is why this settlement is so significant. It's not the $19 million monetary amount that makes this case significant. It's the non-economic terms in this case. And we'll talk about that in a bit. But can you give us a brief recap of the incident? Christian Glass, he was 22, called 911 after his car got stuck on some rocks. How did that call turn into his death? So Christian calls 911. And when the first two officers arrived from Clear Creek County, they are almost immediately aggressive with Christian. And so Christian is scared. It's a dark, kind of in-the-middle-of-nowhere place. Within seconds, the officer is swearing at him. Within a minute or so, the officer is threatening to break out his windows. And within three minutes, the officer has his gun drawn and is pointing it at Christian Glass's head. It spirals from there. Christian Glass did have a couple knives with him, but as the story has come out, He was not threatening the officers. And the settlement money comes from different law enforcement agencies and the state. Why were so many groups involved in this case? When Christian got his car stuck and then the officers pulled their guns out on Christian, agencies from across the area came. Uh, Whether they didn't have anything else to do, uh, this was the water cooler event of the night, uh, is unknown. But there were five different agencies that responded and seven officers in total. All seven of these officers worked together to violate Christian's rights and result in his death. Not a single one of them had the courage to stand up and say, no, we will not tolerate this. Officers have a duty to intervene with their fellow officers. And when an officer doesn't, 
that officer is responsible for the other officer's illegal conduct. The first press releases from law enforcement said Glass was threatening police. Later, different law enforcement agencies apologized. They admitted the information was inaccurate. How significant are these kinds of apologies in advance of a settlement? They're very rare, but they are very significant. Uh, Just like in the Elijah McClain case or the George Floyd case, uh, when the initial incident happened, the police department issued a false statement about what occurred. Uh, We represented Elijah McClain's mother, and that was also a huge issue for her. She wanted that record corrected. Here, Simon and Sally Glass wanted that record corrected, that Christian Glass did nothing wrong and he did not deserve to die. And so the apology letters, the municipalities, the state recognizing that what had occurred here was wrong and the municipalities saying we should never have issued those statements and we should have corrected them was vital to Simon and Sally Glass. So cases need to be looked at together. And the family has emphasized that their main objective in all of this, besides clearing their son's name, is changing police conduct. What would you say is the most critical change that law enforcement agencies have promised to make? Clear Creek is going to be implementing a crisis response team. Crisis response teams are critical. We can see them in the STAR program in Denver. We can look at Summit County's crisis response team and how it has dramatically decreased the number of suicides. These type of crisis response teams are critical tools for municipalities to help their citizens. And the creation of this program in Clear Creek County will be very important. Another thing that's kind of subtle is that Simon and Sally Glass will get to speak with every single new Clear Creek County officer moving on. Hopefully, when those officers listen to Simon and Sally, hear from a mom and dad, they will understand the gravity of the situation. They will understand their responsibility to stand up for those who don't have a voice. Again, Daphne Durrett, the staff writer for The Marshall Project, she mentioned this idea of the glasses going to different agencies and talking to them. One thing that struck me about Christian Glass's case is that one of the provisions of the settlement is that his parents now will be speaking to police academy recruits and people who are starting off in the police department. And I'm sure it's not completely unheard of. I've just rarely, if ever, seen that as part of a settlement. There will also be, I understand, virtual reality training using images of what happened with Christian Glass and police. Correct. The state of Colorado will be creating the Christian Glass virtual reality training program, and that will be based on the situation surrounding Christian's death. Officers will have the opportunity to experience firsthand and make real lifetime decisions in that situation. And that will hopefully not expose an officer to this situation for the first time in a life or death situation. They will see where they can stand up, where they can say, hey, let's not do that. Or, hey, why don't we take a different course of action here? There's also a 
failure to intervene training that the state is putting together. And at the start of that, Sally and Simon Glass will be speaking via pre-recorded video. And again, the, the point of that is to emphasize to each of the officers in the state of Colorado that there is a real human consequence to their actions. There are some people who question the effectiveness of police training. Daphne Durrett of the Marshall Project had this to say generally about training. What I've learned from talking to a bunch of officers who are in charge of training is that many of them have cases where they do train officers to respond a certain way to encounters. And when these officers get in the field, they respond completely differently to how they're trained. So the problems that lead to these cases where there's these large multi-million dollar settlements are much more complicated than we should just train officers better. There are many layers to this issue that police agencies across the country are going to have to grapple with in the coming years. Can you say with certainty that training police in this way makes a difference? Training alone is not enough, but training is an integral part of the solution, especially when you're training on an officer's duty to intervene, which is one of the trainings that will be required as part of the Christian Glass Settlement. When officers then go into the field and don't abide by the training that they're supposed to be living up to, it is the responsibility of each and every other officer there to say something. So when at least one of those officers says something, it eliminates that culture of silence. And if we can get past that, hopefully it will save lives. But there is no magic single bullet. Little by little, changing the culture within policing. And we're hopeful that the Christian Glass Settlement will result in a cultural shift. You led the case, as you said, involving the $15 million settlement to Elijah McLean's mother, Shanine. Elijah McLean died in police custody in August of 2019. That's also, as you mentioned, led to efforts to reform law enforcement. What can you say about what those reforms did in the Christian Glass case? Elijah McLean's mother, Shanine McLean, through her courage, she was able to change the laws in Colorado. Officers are now required to wear body cameras in Colorado. Officers are required to intervene in another officer's misconduct. Just those two changes were instrumental in allowing Simon and Sally Glass to make more changes. It is a process of building on one case, building on another case. Yes, the system is still broken. Police officers still engage in excessive force. It's typically targeted at communities of color. But there is no single community that is safe. Glass's parents are relatively well off. In addition to the training and the settlement, there's also this park being dedicated to Christian Glass. His artwork will be shown in public buildings. 
did privilege play any role in all of this? And did that make a difference in how the case turned out? Simon and Sally Glass will be the first people to tell you how courageous of a person Shanine McLean was. That Shanine McLean changed the entire landscape. They had the privilege of coming after Shanine McLean. They had the privilege of standing on Shanine McLean's shoulders. Siddhartha, thanks so much. Thank you for having me. Siddhartha Rathod is the attorney who represents Sally and Simon Glass, whose son Christian was shot and killed by a sheriff's deputy in Clear Creek County nearly a year ago. They spoke with Andrea Dukakis. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. After World War II, France gave Colorado a gift, a train car. Colorado lost it. My guess is that it is repurposed somewhere. It could be a chicken coop, could be a shed on somebody's property, could be even buried. The moving and mysterious story of the Merci train car. Read this installment of Colorado Wonders and see a picture of the boxcar at CPR.org. Kelly Brupp or Mike Johnston, one of them will be Denver's next mayor. Ballots are due in just under two weeks now on Tuesday, June 6th. This week, Denverite and CPR News partnered with Denver 7 and the Denver Post for a debate with both candidates. We're going to share some of that with you now. Each candidate had 60 seconds to answer their question. The moderators are Denver 7 anchor Anne Trujillo, Denver Post government reporter Joe Rubino, and Denverite neighborhood reporter Desiree Matherin. Here's Anne Trujillo. Prior to the debate, a coin flip decided who will go first. The first question we know is for Mike Johnston. So Joe Rubino with the Denver Post has that question. You both released tax documents to the Denver Post as part of this campaign. Kelly, you reported a 2021 income of about $272,000. Mike, you reported a joint income with your wife of $603,000 in 2021. With those respective incomes, what makes you think you were in touch with Denver's working families who on average are making $94,000 a year? Thank you so much for having me and for the conversation tonight. Yeah, I've spent uh, the last two decades of my career serving working families all across the city of Denver. I started my career as a teacher and a school principal. Uh, know what it's like to be able to live on those salaries and have to be able to try to support a family in the city. Spent time as a state senator uh, where it is also not a well-paid job. I was fortunate the last couple of years to work at a foundation and have the chance to lead it there. But all of my career has been focused on how we make sure we can support those families who are farthest from opportunity. That means for me, uh, making sure everybody has access to a livable wage. It means making sure they have access to affordable housing and make sure you get access to things that we know are driving up costs like childcare. Uh, and so I think that experience has been a huge benefit for me, including the more than 10 years I spent with the community office up in North Park Hill, uh, where neighbors could come in and out of my office every day to talk about the issues that were most relevant for them. I think that service and that connection to community for me is a real driver for the policies I wanna take on as the mayor. Kelly? Thanks for asking. Joe, I think for me, you know, my family grew up and uh, I re received assistance when I was a kid. So my family knows what it's like to work multiple jobs and still need help to put food on your table and keep a roof over your head. When I first moved to Denver for probably the first 20 or 25 years, uh, my husband and I struggled. Uh, we were probably making maybe the median. Um, but in that time, we could still buy a home. Uh, my parents helped care for our kids because we couldn't afford childcare. Uh, we, too, worked multiple jobs to try to figure out how to make ends meet and find a path forward. 
The difference today, though, is, and the next mayor has to focus on this, is I believe today's residents should have the same exact opportunities, where you can buy a home again in the city that you're working hard, where you can afford childcare, and I know we can assist with that, where you can feel safe in your neighborhoods and your kids get the education they deserve in Denver public schools. Those are the things I'll focus on for Denver's working families. Well, in fact, we want to talk about housing right now. Denver has a housing crisis. We do have a series of questions under this topic. First, Denver's building permits office has struggled to catch up on serious backlogs that delay development, including for affordable housing projects. So former mayoral candidate Robert Tretta owns a construction company. He tweeted out, quote, I'll give the new mayor six months to straighten out the building permit mess. And after that, I don't care anymore. I'll be starting projects in Denver without a permit. I will also encourage all my contractor friends to do the same. So what two things could you do to bring that office up to expectations? Kelly, you go first. Yeah, I'll start. And I also want to say former candidate Tretta has endorsed me and I'm grateful. And I take his challenge seriously. There's two things I would do. Denver is significantly behind today. And the reason this is so critical is this not only costs money on those uh, apartments that are being built, but it costs money for Colorado Coalition for the Homeless, for Habitat for Humanity, for affordable housings we're trying to build in our city. I would bring in contractors. There's companies who can help us catch up and really get behind that backlog, which is overwhelming. The second thing I'd do is restructure the department. Today, it's very siloed. We have multiple departments from the Department of Forestry, the Building Code, the Planning Department, the Fire Department, the Transportation Department, all trying to coordinate this work. I'd make it one team with one person in charge of it, really focused on delivering customer service and making sure we get that housing done more efficiently and more cost-effectively. Mike, how would you respond? Yeah, I think the most important thing here that we see every day is we can't afford a Denver where Denverites can't afford to live. Right now, we know the very residents who are serving this city, the teachers, nurses, firefighters, servers, 80% of those folks can't afford to live in this city tonight. And that is a dramatic problem we have to solve. And we're making that problem worse by having a permitting process that is so slow that it drives up the cost of those units and it makes us wait longer and longer to get those units built. So that was one of the reasons why I helped build the coalition of organizations around the state to take on our first statewide ballot measure to take on affordable housing. That was Proposition 123, which passed last year. And a key part of that is not just putting $300 million a year each year into expanding more affordable housing. It's actually forcing cities and counties to move faster in the permitting process. So I would use those regulations to push to get a 90-day fast-track approval process in Denver for affordable units. So we know we can push those affordable projects to the front of the line. We can get them moving. We can get them built. We can get people housed in the units that they know they can afford and they can afford to stay in. Thank you both for those answers. Desiree Matherin with Denverite has our next question. You both endorse permanent supportive housing and short-term housing. However, we've seen in places like Los Angeles that neighborhoods are pushing back against building these types of communities. Will you guarantee that supportive housing will be in every district? If so, how will you deal with pushback? Uh, Mike can go first. Right. Uh, thank you. Yeah, I think that one of the things we know is that if we are going to be able to make this city more affordable, we have to build more affordable units. I've committed a, a vision to build 25,000 units that are permanently affordable over the next eight years. And that would allow people who live in those units to not have to pay more than 30% of what they make to rent. And so if you're a teacher making $40,000 a year, you don't have to pay more than $1,000 a month. And you don't have to worry your rent's going to get jacked up each month because your rent doesn't go up unless your income goes up. And that allows us to bring density and to bring supportive housing around the city. I think we do want to focus on the places where we have access to public transit. 
We have access to light rail or to buses, so we can have uh, more dense housing that don't always require everyone to have a car because they have an easy and convenient way to get to work. So I think we want to bring affordable housing to all of the regions of Denver, but we also want to prioritize those places that have the best access to transit as places where we can build the greatest density. And that's what I would work with neighborhoods to do. Kelly? Yeah, to make a city work, we have to have a range of housing throughout our city. Uh, and the most important decision the next mayor can make is work with city council on our land use. And this is where we have to build density, where we've already made investments in our transit system, but our major bus routes. And this isn't just for affordability, this is also for our environment, for transportation reasons, air quality reasons, water usage. So you'll see my administration really focus on building that more affordable housing, not just rent, but for sale as well throughout our city in every neighborhood so that we're building where we should have density, but we're also building so our kids can access schools they never could have accessed, families can own homes in neighborhoods they never could have afforded, and I will look at publicly owned land to be able to deliver that product so it's more, to, more affordable, like a land bank or a land trust, and it will be throughout our city. I just want to be clear that I heard an answer because the question was, will you guarantee that supportive housing will be in every district? Is that a yes from both of you? For yes. affordable housing in every district, yes. yes. If you mean council districts, I assume. Thank you. Yes. yes, yes, yes. All right, thank you. We're going to move on to homelessness now. Last month, the city auditor released a report saying Denver is spending more than it's reporting on homelessness. Three million on enforcement, eight million on outreach, and two and a half million on cleanups for a total of about $13 million, a number that is likely much bigger. So we have a question for each of you. Kelly, with that audit number in mind, you've said the use of arrest would be an option as a last resort. Do you stand by that? And knowing that there is a shortage of Denver police and sheriffs, where will the resources to arrest people come from? Yeah, really, uh, it is a last resort. The priority, and I really have to emphasize what the auditor is focused on in his audit, is the cost of continually sweeping people and how ineffective that is. And so I'm proposing we actually stop doing that. And instead, with urgency, we get people to safer, safe outdoor sites, indoor when we can, but safe outdoor sites. So we stop sweeping people and we actually start to save lives. Uh, in that process, if somebody refuses to go or, more importantly, isn't capable of making that decision for themselves, I have said I would take them to a place like Denver Cares that we have today. This is a facility for someone who's intoxicated or high and can't take care of themselves. And I would take people to those locations to take care of them through this process. Okay, Joe has the next question for Mike. Mike, your plan to address homelessness includes building micro-communities of tiny homes. How do you prioritize who gets first pick of those units? Uh, thanks for the question, Joe. And um, I'm glad to come back to this. I don't think uh, arresting people who are homeless is the answer. I think the answer is getting people access to housing, getting people access to housing that have the supportive services we know uh, people need. Uh, example is I was talking to a guy outside of a shelter a few weeks ago uh, who had a construction hat in his bag and was saying that he's been working construction but ended up homeless again after 11 months of work because he had to choose between going to get a shift for construction at 5.30 in the morning or going to the methadone clinic where he's getting treatment to get off his addiction. And because he had to choose treatment, he missed the shift, couldn't pay the rent, was back on the street. That's not someone that needs to be arrested. That's someone that needs access to housing, needs access to services, needs access to support. What we know is that if we create this kind of housing, Joe, we know there's people who want to go there in overwhelming numbers. And so that's why we want to build this scale quickly. These tiny homes can be built quickly. We can convert hotels quickly. That allows us to move people to those sites that we know they overwhelmingly want to go. And so for me, that's how we solve it, and we can solve it with real speed. 
Thank you. All right, here's Des with the next question. You both have produced plans addressing our unhoused community members. So this next question comes from the Sun Valley Community Coalition. What is your plan to address the need for affordable housing for low-income Denverites and missing middle that does not displace current residents? And Mike can go first. I'm so glad that you raised this because this is what we're finding is there is a huge gap of affordable housing, not just for folks that are unhoused, but for people that are working full jobs, sometimes two full jobs and still can't get access to housing. This is why it's so important to make sure we have housing that we can guarantee people is affordable and will stay affordable. So uh, my proposal will build these 25,000 units or convert existing units to be permanently affordable so people can get access to them at any income level. If you're making 20,000 a year or 30,000 a year or 60,000 a year, we know we have families that are married couples making 80,000 a year that still can't afford to raise kids in this city. And this links your rent to what you're actually making. And so you don't have a scenario where someone's paying 50% of what they make to income, or sorry, to rent. That's what's happening around the city right now. And that's what's making it possible for people to stay uh, in this city. So for me, that priority is about meeting people at whatever income level they're at and making sure they can get access to housing that doesn't burden them and keep them from being able to pay for food for their kids or transportation or the rest of the medication or core services families need. Kelly. This is so key because I think we have to start thinking about housing as the continuum that it really is. So while I'll focus on, you know, hardworking families and how we make sure they stay, I'm going to tie it back to this is all part of how we also address unhoused in our city and prevent it. And so for me, I think what has worked in other cities that I think is extremely promising is something called master leasing where either your housing authority or a nonprofit we would create would start to master lease. In essence, negotiate leases in mass. And we'd be able to pass that reduced rent and hold it flat for years to our own residents. We know two things about that. One, it allows us to rehouse people who are unhoused today. And over 40% are estimated to have jobs. So we know that will help us. Uh, but it also allows hardworking families to not lose their homes and prevent homelessness. Because in that instance, the master lease signer gets a phone call before someone's evicted and we start to get ahead of the challenge we face today. Our next topic covers the overwhelming surge of migrants. City's chief financial officer estimates the city will have spent up to $20 million caring for migrants by next month, with more than 10,000 migrants arriving in the city, and then we're spending about $1,000 per week per migrant. Now, the federal government has reimbursed less than $1 million of that, forcing the city to rely on community partnerships to help people. So what more should the city be doing to curb these costs? And Kelly, we'll let you start this question. Yeah, I got the chance in December when we had the first influx of migrants to volunteer at Rudy Park Rec Center and see firsthand the incredible response our city has conducted. And frankly, we should all be proud of what we've done. Uh, but I think, as you point out, Anne, it is not sustainable what we're doing today. So a few things we can do differently it's estimated about 70% of the migrants coming to our city today are actually trying to get to another city. So this is where I think we have to ask the federal government to start coordinating at the border so we actually get people where they're trying to go and they're not being shuffled around our nation uh, because that's a huge part of that expense today. But the second reality is we're telling people who are coming here seeking refugee status uh, that uh, it will take months and months, best case probably six, and years before we know if they receive that status in our nation. And meanwhile, you can't work. My priority will be allowing people to work until they can find out what their status is. Thank you, Mike. Uh, yeah, I was um, speaking to some of the migrants last week about this and they'll all tell the same story. Everyone came up to me and said, 
hey, where can I find a job? Where can I find a place to work? I, I, I want to work. What are the options? And at the same time, I have business leaders calling me and saying, hey, I have so many jobs I can't fill. How can I hire those folks? So the only challenge we have right now is we have people in this country who want to work. We have businesses who want to hire them. And we have a federal government who won't get out of the way to let those employers hire those people who want to get to work. And so uh, I would push President Biden and Secretary Mayorkas to say, these folks should have temporary protective status now. They should be able to get to work right now while we're waiting to see what their long-term status is. But it doesn't serve them or us to have them here not able to do what they want, which is to support themselves. Um, and the second is we have to find ways to solve costs as a community. The city doesn't have to do this all on our own. We should reach out to churches and nonprofits and community partners, other regional partners to say Denver doesn't have to carry all of this cost on our own. We don't have to pay rent at hotels every single night. Where do we have community partners who can help solve this housing? And I think that's a much better way to go about it. Well, which leads us to our next question, Joe. Yeah, Mike, you'll be leading this one off. Uh, you know, how, as mayor, would either of you reach out to our neighboring communities uh, to take some of this burden off of our local nonprofits in the city of Denver, the financial burden of, of helping these migrants in the short term? Uh, great question, Joe. And for me, there's a step I do even before that, which is right now I would call El Paso because right now most of these migrants are coming from El Paso and they're being put on a bus to Denver with no knowledge they're coming to Denver or no desire to stay in Denver. We could help ease a lot of this pressure by working with El Paso in advance to say, if you have folks that know they're trying to get to Boston or trying to get to Chicago, let's put them on a bus to Chicago in the first place, not come to Denver as a first stop. And then when we know what that volume is, we can work with our neighboring communities to say, all right, what capacity does Denver have? And what capacity could Colorado Springs have? What capacity could Fort Collins have? What capacity could Grand Junction have? This is what we did after the uh, Katrina in New Orleans, and we knew they were refugees coming to Colorado. We partnered in advance. We worked with other municipalities, we identified locations, and we moved people to places where we knew there was staff and support. We can do the same thing here. It just takes a more proactive approach and more regional partnership to make sure we get it done. Kelly? Yeah, for me, I'd do what I've already done as a candidate. Um, we have a number of organizations. The Metro Mayor's Caucus, I think, is one of the strongest that really brings together all of this region's mayors. Uh, I've met with a number of mayors in this region, and I talked with them about my homeless plan and that I believe we actually can't address our unhoused population unless we actually work together. And seven mayors in the metro area have endorsed my homeless plan and me as a candidate. I would do the same kind of work on issues like this, and frankly, other issues that we face, from transportation to air quality to climate issues. We have to do these things as a region. But I would use more than just the Metro Mayor's Caucus. We also have the Colorado Counties Incorporated, CCI. We have the Colorado Municipal League. Those are all structures that are perfectly situated to allow us to come in and begin those partnerships immediately. Thank you both. We're going to move on to child care now, that issue, and Desiree has a question. In December 2022, the average monthly cost of child care in Denver was $1,575, a cost burden for many families. But the supply of care is also an issue. For example, there is overwhelming wait lists and the closing of the Wonder Academy in the Golden Triangle neighborhood. Excuse me, in the Golden Triangle neighborhood. What will you do to address the lack of facilities? Kelly, you can start. This is such a huge issue. It was a huge issue for my family as I raised my daughters, and it's even more challenging today. And like so many families, frankly, my parents are who saved us and helped us raise our daughters because we couldn't afford childcare in our city. Today, we do have the Denver Preschool Program. It's up for reauthorization in 2026, I think, uh, which means we'll start looking at that reauthorization reauthor by 2024. I would start partnering in our community of early child care providers and talk about if we could move the age down on that, given 
that we now have full day K and preschool uh, support from the state and see if we could get to more families earlier with the financial support and the quality programs that it offers. But here's the real issue. We have to address pay. If we're going to have enough workers to provide the care that we need, we have to address the pay of the workers in this field. And I would work with that same group to come up with solutions to address that issue. Mike? After housing, we know that childcare is the single most difficult cost that families face right now. Uh, and this is one we have to take action on. Uh, I'm proud I've been working on this for the last several years. We actually worked with a broad coalition of leaders around the state uh, to bring universal preschool to Colorado with a 2020 ballot measure. That's going to make a huge difference for four-year-olds and families' ability to get access to preschool for those four-year-olds. It also means in Denver, we allowed it for them, the Denver Preschool Program, to move that support down to expand to more three-year-olds. So we'll be able to expand that care, but there are a couple things we have to continue to do. One is we need more actual providers. We live in a childcare desert where it's too many neighborhoods that don't have access to providers at all. So we want to help ramp up and scale more providers. That includes things like in downtown Denver, using vacant office spaces to be able to retrofit those for childcare facilities to folks bringing their kids downtown can place them there. It means training more people who want to enter into being childcare providers. And that's a great pipeline for us to get them to become teachers. But we have to be able to both train those people, prepare them, pay them, and get them access to sites where they can teach. All right, this next question focuses on the economy, and this comes from Denver 7 anchors Nicole Brady and Brian Sanders. Brian and I have both reported on efforts to restore Denver's business districts, including Lodo, Cherry Creek, and downtown. We've heard from the community concerned about crime, safety, also how the move to remote and hybrid work is decreasing foot traffic in business. So our question to the candidates, what three specific ideas do you have to help revive Denver's business districts? And Mike, we'll let you start. Uh, I do think you mentioned some of the most important parts of reviving business, which is when I talk to business leaders today, particularly about downtown, they'll say, and my employees felt the same way. They're worried about their safety in downtown. So for me, that's a start of making sure we put more first responders onto the street. I've come out to say we should put 200 more first responders. That means, yes, officers that are out walking beats and being visible in neighborhoods to talk to business leaders and residents. It means mental health and paramedics when we need those. I think that's an important step. The second is getting folks who are unhoused access to housing and services and stability. That's really important. But the third is encouraging people to come back uh, downtown, particularly to work. That means doing things like I've proposed partnering with business to make commuting to and from downtown free for commuters on public transit, light rail and bus lines, true for co uh, free for college kids or students, uh, supportive of seniors. So people, it's easier to get to and from downtown. You can have childcare facilities now downtown, and you know you have a safer, more stable downtown. Those things will make the biggest difference in getting a downtown that's gonna be vibrant again. Kelly? I've committed to end, <clears throat> sorry, unsanctioned camping my first year. And this is just so important that people have a safer place to be, uh, housing and shelter that they can be at. I think that will help our downtown tremendously. Uh, but I also believe we have to start to focus on increasing residential downtown where we get people 24 hours a day, seven days a week. And today we are losing office buildings and other cities have found transitioning some of those office buildings to residential really helps uh, restore the vibrancy of your downtown. I also believe we have to focus on the completion of the mall. There's no question that that construction is impacting uh, your experience downtown and feelings of isolation. So I'd really focus to make sure we stay on time and maybe earlier so we can complete that construction and start to rebuild and create the events that invite people to be part of our downtown again. Thank you both. Joe has our next question. 
Mayor Hancock has said remote work has promoted employment and retention in the city, but he has enacted a policy that requires many city employees to be at their desks at least three days a week. Do you feel that city employees should be part of the solution to promote economic activity downtown? And Kelly, you're first. Thanks. Uh, I think when I think about uh, the responsibility of the mayor in terms of the workforce, it's about how can we best deliver customer service, deliver, deliver results. And so I will really focus on every single decision being about supporting uh, our customers. And that looks different. We have a number of city employees who come in every single day. They didn't get a break during the pandemic. We have others who maybe have flexibility. Uh, there's no question that employees are downtown probably about the same amount that our private sector employees are downtown today. I think we could look at how could we uh, increase the times, um, the work locations even, even if it's not in the office. And I think this has to be true for our private sector and public sector, because the public sector alone is not going to be able to revitalize our downtown. But I think together with strategies that bring workers here uh, for uh, funner activities, things we do before and after work, I think could also help revitalize it. Thank you, Mike. Yes, I do believe we want to encourage more workers to come to work downtown. That means private sector businesses. That means our own workers. Uh, and I'll tell you, this is not just a, it'd be nice to have more people in downtown. This is a fundamental equity issue for the city. If you are someone who works at a, as a server at a restaurant and you don't have a lunch shift anymore, that's a huge impact on your income every month. If you're someone who works at a retail shop downtown and you don't have an eight to four shift anymore during the day, that's a huge impact on your family's income. And we know a lot of those jobs that don't have the privilege of being able to be remote are relying on a lot of us to be able to be back in person to not just revive the vibrance of downtown, but to make sure those people whose jobs depend on us uh, have the ability to get that access to services. So I see our city employees, certainly the folks that I appoint and the city employees we work with as part of that call to service. Our fundamental mission is to help revive this city. And part of that work for us is to make sure we revive downtown. Of course, there's still ways to have flexibility and figure out what people need department by department, uh, but we will push to try to make sure all of the city's employees can come and help us revive downtown, and we'll be part of that. That was Mike Johnston and Kelly Bruff and a portion of a Denver mayoral candidates debate, which was held Tuesday night. It was produced by Denverite, CPR News, Denver 7, and the Denver Post. Read profiles of both candidates at CPR.org and Denverite.com. Ballots in the runoff election are due by 7 p.m. on Tuesday, June 6. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. The Southwest United States has been in a drought for more than 20 years. A big problem for the Colorado River and the people who use it. Parched, the new podcast from CPR News, is about people who rely on the river that shape the West and have ideas to save it. We cannot just allow nature to disappear. Find Parched wherever you get your podcasts. Supported by Alpine Bank. Last Wednesday was Pamela Wilkins' last day teaching woods, or as we called it back in the day, woodshop. The Littleton High School teacher is one of the few women woodshop teachers in the state. CPR's education reporter Jenny Brundine caught up with Wilkins, who is retiring after 30 years. Let's start with your morning. Pamela Wilkins is bubbly and friendly, but there's no time for chit-chat when there's spoons, pens, chessboards, and tables to be made. Safety glasses on, earplugs in, let's go make some sawdust. Let's go make some sawdust. With that trademark opener, the woodshop transforms into a hive of activity. In a typical academic class, there's always some kids with eyes glazed over. Not here. 
every student is 100% into it, really into it. Remember on this one, you're going to want to hold it with your right hand and run it with your left hand. Wilkins Circulates, helping kids with band saws, lathes, routers, and shapers. Here's ninth grader Adrian Sanchez. If you need help, she'll help you. She motivates you, and yeah, she's just a really fun teacher. Wilkins' enthusiasm for woods and later design and tech helped her slowly take over the school's garden level. As one of the previous teachers called it, it was my kingdom. I said, well, where's my throne? <laughs> it's a long way from the late 90s when a lot of school wood shops disappeared. The push then was getting everyone into a four-year college, and tech was all the craze. But after those shops disappeared, Wilkins' principal noticed that a lot of sophomore boys were dropping out. There was nothing to keep them at school. We need to give them an avenue to shine. Wilkins pushed to bring back wood shop. And it has gone mad since then. The road to being a woods teacher wasn't always easy. Wilkins was the only girl in her middle school shop class. In high school, girls thought she was trying to steal their boyfriends. And in college, on the path to getting certified to teach industrial arts, she almost quit because of the persistent mocking by a male classmate. Until one day, the dean caught wind of what was going on. And that dean took him out the door, and I don't know what was said, but he never did that again, ever. Wilkins' toughness and persistence commands respect from students. But her students are more apt to describe her differently. Nice, friendly, chill, that one comes up a lot helpful, and Zoe Mateo says, comforting. Me being a woman too, it's way less intimidating because when you think of a shop, like you always think of like a big man working in a shop all day, but then you get like Miss Wilkins, she always has her nails done. Like <laughs> normally I have my nails done. So like I love having a figure like that in the shop. It's less intimidating. Mateo says Wilkins' rapport with teenagers and passion for what she's doing is obvious. She loves what she's doing. She loves what she's teaching. And she knows a lot about it. A couple of times in the hour and a half long class, Wilkins has a lineup of students with queries. With deft speed and the precision of a pro, she dispenses her knowledge. Remember, you're always keeping your butterfly facing which way? It's going top. So we're lifting the lid up here. So once that comes up a little bit, then we're going to... Student Nick Gibson can't find a clamp, but as Wilkins goes to find one, she gets diverted. So let's put a little bit of blue tape here, some on the sides. A quick stop off at a lathe machine. So which lathe do you want to work on? She circles back to Nick to help him find a clamp. Yeah, it's a rubber band clamp. That works just fine, and she's off again. Still looking for corners. Let's go this way and see what we can find. You need string. I'm tired just watching her. They say an average teacher answers 220 questions a day. I might exceed that. I'm not sure. <laughs> it wasn't just the 30 years of teaching that's prompted Wilkins to hang up the hammer. She was diagnosed with multiple sclerosis. That led to leg cramps, numb feet, unreliable hearing, exhaustion, and at times, brain fog. There's times I've looked at a kid that I've known for four years. I can't put a name on him. And they look at you like, I can't believe you don't know my name. It's like, no, you have no idea. It's part of the disease. The students are sad she's not coming back next year. Here's Hunter Follett. Oh, I love Miss Wilkins. She's like my favorite teacher. As much as the students will miss Wilkins, she'll miss them, teaching them how to troubleshoot, hide their mistakes. That's part of the creative process. She'll miss the occasional story, like the kid who told her she was the reason his stepfather made it through high school. She'll miss the lathe. You know, if I can get a free moment and I go turn on the lathe for you know, 45 minutes or an hour, life is good. <laughs> it's really a lot of fun. She'll miss the kids' light bulb moments. They get excited about what they've created and done. And they see the, the beauty that's in there. And with a final... Clean up! 
Mrs. Wilkins' students pop into action, sweeping up all their hard-earned sawdust. I'm Jenny Brendine, CPR News. Finally today, we remember the queen of rock and roll. Tina Turner died Wednesday at the age of 83. Her spokesperson says she passed away peacefully in her home in Switzerland after a long illness. Turner began her career in the 1950s during the early years of rock and roll, but she achieved her greatest success in the 1980s during the height of the MTV era with her best-selling album, Private Dancer. It includes arguably her biggest hit, the chart-topping, What's Love Got to Do With It? Hers is a story of triumph, overcoming an abusive relationship with her former husband and longtime collaborator Ike Turner to take on the music world on her own terms. A 12-time Grammy winner, her life story is coming to a Colorado stage this fall. Tina, the Tina Turner musical, plays at the Denver Center for the Performing Arts October 18th through the 29th. And we suspect that production will take on extra special meaning to audiences with her passing. It's physical, only logical. You must try to ignore that it means more than that. Oh, what's love got to do? Got to do with it. What's love but a second-hand emotion? What's love got to do? Got to do with it. Thanks for joining us today. I'm Chandra Thomas Whitfield. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I read it someplace. I've got cause to be. There's a name for it. There's a phrase that 